Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. On this show, if you've listened before, you know that we like to highlight different interesting Orthodox Jews, people who do things out of the box, people who are involved in the life of giving or chesed. Um, today's guest is no different in terms of being out of the box and having your own way of doing things. I first heard about her, I found her online, um, I guess like several weeks ago. Uh, the interesting thing is that I had heard about her father before. Um, I had never actually listened to Howard Stern, but um, I known about him, you know, from his radio fame. Um, and then I guess last year my friend Mayim Bialik was on his show, and it was interesting that he took an interest in what she had to say about modesty in Sneas. She mentioned that the reason that she covers up is because Hollywood doesn't own her body, it belongs to her. And one of our fans the next day came onto the show to say that he actually repeated it on his show the next day, that he was really taken by this idea. So I was kind of thinking about, you know, Howard Stern and his uh, kind of Jewy connection. And um, then a few weeks ago, I discovered this woman, this poet, this artist online, who had this uh, brilliant poem about um, Adam looking to, like, find his mate. And why did he never choose God when God asked him to find his mate? Why did he go through all the animals and never choose God? And as I read more about her... I figured out who it was and that this man's daughter had become an Orthodox Jew herself and I became fascinated. We connected, uh, we got together, and today um, I'm going to introduce her to you um, and all the amazing projects that she's up to, um, exploring and sort of publicizing Torah to the world through art. So Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Ooh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. Um, so. <laughs> Um, obviously, you didn't grow up religious, and, and you found uh, your way to an observant lifestyle. So can you let us know a little bit about sort of how that journey happened? Mm, yeah, thanks for asking. I um, had a desire really from inside to really find a community and a world that actually resonated with me. And it felt um, important to do that for living my life. And um, I was doing a lot of theater at the time. I was about 23, I guess, and I walked into my first Havzalah ceremony at a, a yoga studio, hmm. and it was a Havzalah ceremony given um, by Romamu, which is a renewal community on the Upper West Side, and um, I've, I have never seen something like ritual in the way that it was relating to the world and, you know, in such a grounded way. Hmm. And it really gave me an opportunity to begin to relate to matter in a way that was authentic for me and um, to live in a really holy connection with life. And also the community is really artistic. So I feel like I really found two ways of expressing my soul in the world authentically, which is to relate to matter through halacha and also through sharing my art. About Be Beautiful. So Roma was sort of the first, this Havdalah ceremony was the first sort of uh, entrance into seeing ritual, and then you did some learning. You're you're a little bit of a Talmidah Chachama. <laughs> I, um, yeah, was really inspired by the language of Torah and wanted my writing to speak that language. So I did um, at Drisha, which is a seminary on, also on the Upper West Side on 65th and Broadway. Um, at the time, they had an art fellowship. And I did that art fellowship and wrote a play there. I was very inspired by the Torah, which led me to Israel to study at Nishmat. And always, yeah, Torah in, in its driest form, as somebody would say, maybe like, it inspires me so much. 
And had you learned any Torah when you were a child? I'm saying I imagine Hebrew school, bat mitzvah, that sort of regular stuff that all of us went through. Was there any Torah study there or not really? Totally. I mean, I grew up reform and I really did love it. But of course, you know, there isn't that um, ritual element. But I loved it. I, I sang in the choir and was close with the cantor and always felt a, a resonance with Judaism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk a lot here about stereotypes that people have about the Orthodox community. Did you have any exposure to Orthodox Jews or sort of see them from afar growing up in Long Island? Did you have any ideas or opinions before you met people up close? <laughs> um, you know, I'm trying to think. Um, not really so much, but I, I do feel, you know, that I am... Um, when I see like when I see Orthodox Jews, I do feel um, even when I see tzitzis to this day, I really do feel a, a special light, and um, I think that I always felt that way. I don't I don't think there was much prejudice. I think I, I always appreciated something. Interesting. And did people when you when people saw you kind of transforming to some, a more observant version mm-hmm. of yourself? Because I guess you were always a spiritual Emily Stern, but a more ritualistic and observant Emily Stern. Did you find any sort of backlash or kind of like, why are you becoming one of them? Or God, I wonder. I mean, I um, I feel like it happened pretty seamlessly. I uh, I feel like it was such an emergence of my truth that um, it wasn't extreme right off and sure. sort of built. And I feel like my uh, my family appreciates kind of my yeah my connection to it. That's amazing because a lot of uh, Bali Chuva <laughs> do not have the same experience. I know as I'm I was making totally the transition, wrong. people were telling me, if you become one of them, they'll subjugate you. If you become one of them, they'll make you have a dozen children. They were kind of, if you become one of them, they'll make you throw rocks. So um, I guess I had a less, less tolerant family and friends, but no, I'm happy to hear there that. Uh, was, there was a moment. Yeah, there definitely was a moment when my mom came to visit me in Israel, and she was like, she always said she thought maybe she was losing me when she saw me praying in the shul. But she she got, you know, I think there's that, I think for parents when they see the kid make the change, there's kind of that fear of like, where is this going? But as long as you keep your authentic self along with it, it seems like the artistic sort of spiritual Emily that you've always been has continued now into more sort of like stricture and rules, but it's still there. And I think from my family and friends when they saw that my goofy, you know, silly personality was continuing and not being replaced by mm-hmm. something they didn't recognize, it was sort of that feeling of like, mm-hmm. okay, like we can learn to adjust to this new Allison. Make sense? Totally. Totally. <laughs> and figuring out what the, what the dogma elements are and what is actually true. So, yeah, exactly. Totally. Well, right. So that's a big thing to clarify uh-huh. what what's true, what's stereotype, what's, you know, stringency, what's basic mm-hmm. law, that sort of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. So you, besides being a naturally spiritual person and also insanely insightful, and I have to just tell our audience today, um, I don't say this often, I don't like, you know, slather on praise if I don't mean it, but you are really one of the most insightful people I've ever met over a coffee. Like you help me understand myself, you know, more than, <laughs> I'll give just one example. Um, this Orthodox Jewish All-Stars uh, Awards that we do every year to feature some of the most well-known and successful Orthodox Jews out there. I mentioned to you that we do this, and I mentioned to you at some point along the way that 
my mother didn't have, you know, Jewish wisdom and, and Torah to pass on to us to create Jewish pride. And so she would just instead tell us about the number of doctors, lawyers, Nobel laureates who were Jewish to try to make us feel good. And you stopped me and you said, well, that's where the all-stars come from. This is your way of increasing Jewish pride. And I was so struck by this. And I called my mother and I called my husband, my best friend. And I was like, why did no one else ever tell me this before? It's just like so, um, I don't know. It was, is this like a, a common did they, thing? Did they recognize it? Yeah, to see it, I'm saying like, or do people tell you all the time that you're very insightful or? Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm glad I could have, I could offer something to you. <laughs> and no, I just, I, I think it connects with the art. I think maybe um, it's part of like you being an artist, just sort of seeing things in the world and I don't know, seeing them in a little bit of a different way. So just to tell our listeners, mm -hmm. what type of art have you been involved with? You mentioned um, theater before. What types of different art have you created over mm -hmm. the years? Um, well, yeah, I definitely um, started in theater, and from that became a very deep exploration into myself, and I ended up creating an album called Birthday, which um, just, like, came really deeply from my bones, and I was writing, um, I made something called Love Psalms, which are short devotional poems to God, but really, I really feel like my creativity exploded in a totally different way when I found Torah. And um, went to Drisha Nishmat, wrote plays there. And one of the main things I'm really proud of, um, besides the project I want to talk to you about today, but also yeah. I wrote um, a children's song book. Huh. And it's based on Tarek Shira. And, yeah, which, you know, talks about the, the sounds that each animal, the praises each animal sings. But it takes place on a playground. It's called The Worlds of Song, So Come and Play. With cool. children kind of discovering their song. I know. <laughs> I That's very, it. I appreciate your interest up your alley. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to share it with you. Totally. All right, next time you come on. Um, okay, so so theater, um, play, book, poems, and also we're going to talk today about mm -hmm. a new photography project you're working on. So would you say that yeah. woo, is creating art a spiritual experience for you? Definitely. It's one of the most awesome spiritual experiences, I think, throughout my life. Um, it's always surprised me, and um, when I was younger, it was really connected to prayer for me, because I was so ner I was such a shy child, and when I would go on stage, I would just pray and pray and pray before, <laughs> that I feel like it would end up just being such a miraculous experience for me to let go and explore and feel, and feel being on stage, like, in a really present way, which totally was just God, of course. And um, nowadays, I feel like it um, manifests itself in a really constant conversation with mm. the world and um, just life itself. Like, I'll open a piece of Torah, and it'll be the exact piece that fits with, like, a character I'm writing. Or, you know, like, um, when I write poetry, I was thinking that, um, you know, like, you'll just rewrite and realize that like everything happening for you that seems so disconnected really is under this one theme so it's more a conversation with God and definitely that's communion and feels really great hmm. very cool um, I feel like I might have told you this quote when I met you for coffee, but um, I'll tell it now since no one else was there then. Um, there's this beautiful <laughs> quote, which I heard an, in the name of Rev Cook. I haven't actually seen it in writing, so if it's not, if I got it wrong, then I'm sorry. But um, there's an idea that 
Hashem left the world unfinished so that we could partner with Him. And when we create art, we're helping to finish in the process of creation, which, um, I mean, I guess in a sense, I'm an artist too. I'm writing, I'm making videos, I'm doing that sort of thing. And it's really, uh, it, it does feel very holy to, um, you know, see something that it was first in your mind and then, you know, see it come to fruition, you know, sort of come into the world and, and feel like sort of a partner in creation in that way. So, um, very cool. Yeah. So now, so let's get like to, let's first talk. First of all, you did not share that with me, and I love that quote. Oh, I did? Um, I, I guess maybe I just meant I didn't. Did it's it. amazing, right? I have to I find it. source. I'll tell you the interesting thing is that, um, so Mayim's mother was actually, Mayim Bialik's mother was raised Orthodox, and she was a painter, and somehow in the home that she was raised in, she was led to believe that she wasn't allowed to paint because of um, like Jewish reasons or something about halacha, which is just so not true. Right. I don't think, I mean, I sort of looked into the whole like graven image thing and it doesn't really seem like it applies to, you know, paintings that people are doing nowadays. But for her, she saw Torah as a thing that restricted her from making her art. And mine and I recently did on Kveller, we did like a sort of stereotypes on Orthodox Jews um, post where she, she raised this issue. But, um, it's so sad for me that there could be people that got stopped in their art making, um, being told that Torah stopped them from doing it when, um, yeah, the idea of, of finishing off creation with Hashem just seems like when totally God holy to creator, me. When God is the creator, you know, God is also such a, that, that's a huge element of God's, you know, persona or action in the world. So I think it's very cool to, like, study as well as take that on, you know? For sure. But I have to tell you that the Drisha's, the Drisha Arts Fellowship, I don't think is happening anymore. And I think that that's one of the most special things in the Orthodox world. I think the funding was pulled. So, hmm. yeah. so you know, what, there's something it's else exciting. actually um, for if any artists are listening today, because I, you know, I hope, as I've said before, as we showcase different types of people doing interesting things, I hope the people that are listening that are thinking like, do I have a place in an observant life? You know, if I am like this or like that, I hope that the artists are, you know, perking up and listening right now. Um, there's something in Pittsburgh called Sohar which is a Chabad program for artists where they do, it's a seminary where they're doing art and learning Torah side by side. So I should probably hook you up with them too, Emily, now that I'm thinking about all these ideas. Um, so what's it called? Yeah. So I want to talk to you about Wells of Miriam because this is kind of like, this is your baby right now. And it's really, I mean, it's sort of happening, you know, you're doing research yeah. and, you know, creating it kind of as we're speaking right now. So can you share with our mm -hmm. listeners today, um, what is Wells of Miriam? How did you come up with it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. So, um, the Wells of Miriam, like you said, is a photography project, and it's the name comes from the well, of course, that that um, accompanied the Israelites in the desert for, and I think it, and it was said to come from the merit of Miriam, and so this photography project came from me seeing my first water retention landscape, which is um, a sustainable form of water management. And I saw my first one in Portugal in 2014 in the summer. Um, and that one was created by Sepp Holzer, and he's like a very um, innovative permaculturist. Um, and so these retention landscapes, I realized, are mixed because they're 100%. I mean, they're totally rainwater. And so I, I realized, like, oh, a mix of two-thirds rainwater. Hmm. And um, so I started taking photographs of, of this. I could explain more with the retention landscape. Yeah, you can want, you give but, us a little more? Because um, I, I got to see your pictures, but, um, the, you know, that oh. radio doesn't do that. So, yeah, if you could explain to us kind of like what we might be envisioning if we saw one or how they get built, that sort of a thing. 
Well, it totally looks like paradise. <laughs> Essentially, it's just you, you dig a ditch um, with in a really intelligent way because it really models a pond or a lake or whatever you're doing. Or some places, like it, it varies in altitude to help with the water circulation and stuff inside the ditch. And um, it's a, it's um, what is that called? A dam. And it's all made of natural materials. And when the water falls, it first starts by really filling very, very deeply into the earth and refilling the aquifers and rehydrating the land. And you begin to see kind of along the outskirts new, um, like new uh, vegetation growing and new animals coming and new ecosystems just all forming. It's just so stunning. And then eventually, once everything's all ready, you watch the pit be filled, <laughs> be filled with uh, mm. rainwater. And that's the, that's the, that's the mix up, what it's up to that point and you can immerse. And so what, when, when people are building these water retention landscapes, they're doing it to have like drinking water or for animals or both like, oh, what, yeah. what is for everything. I mean, it just supplies water to the, to the land hmm. for all of it, for cleanliness, everything. So basically. And there's a community in Israel who actually, oh, can I? Yeah, yeah, say again. Oh, Okay. So there's um, this place called the Peace Research Village. It's a community in um, Israel who is connected with this um, other community that has this water retention landscape, a bunch of them up and running, and they want to make them in Israel. So in the photography project, there also are photographs of um, different places, and it's kind of just like, could you, could you imagine it being there too? <laughs> and there really isn't. It's really a process of reversing desertification. So... Um, Wait, say that word again. So reversing what? Um, desertification. Got it. Making deserts. This is that, and um, you don't really need much rainfall for it to work. Um, it's just a matter of harnessing the rainfall, hmm. you know, in, a, in an intelligent way. way. Yeah. Fascinating. So this this <laughs> well of Miriam, the original well of Miriam, before you came around mm. to uh, to do the 2014 version of it, 2015 version, um, <laughs> was it was it used back in the desert for the Israelites for both a mikvah and for drinking water? Were they using it for both purposes? Yeah, I think it supplied them with everything. Mm. I think that it takes on you know all the all the symbolism that that it holds today of you know of just life <laughs> and yeah i'm i yeah yeah I, of all basically all that. life comes from this water because there's life to sustain the the people in their physical sense and then the life to sustain people for next generation keeping the marriages alive that that sort of a thing mm-hmm. yeah everything and what I mean, everything um, goes awry <laughs> But is there, is there a practical implication yeah. for this connection that you made when you saw a water retention landscape? This is a mikvah. Is there anything that, besides just sort of making the connection, thinking like, huh, that's cool that, you know, we, I guess, sort of, that the mikvah itself is, I guess, sort of a lesson in how rainwater could be collected and be used to sustain people in the eating sense, not the, you know, uh, marital sense. Is there yeah. a practical uh, ramification or is it more just sort of like... Um, Philosophically, it's a, it's an interesting point. Oh, interesting! No, they can. I mean, they can really be used as mikvahs, mm-hmm. legitimately. I so, mean, me- meaning places know, where think, where these water retention landscapes are built, they they could have the second purpose as mikvahs. Oh yeah, I mean absolutely, and and of course providing you know fresh like cleanliness for everything and sure you know, absolutely. 
And have you thought about where you might want this? Because you're still, you're not quite done with your, the photo project yet. You're still, you have a, st- a few more shots you want to set up and take. Do you have any idea where a home for this project will be one day or what do you, where do you hope to display it? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it could really work well in JCCs. And, um, you know, there, I feel like there are so many different points of view to look at it from because there's the halakhic band and the ecological, and it's also just really pretty photography. Mm-hmm. So anywhere that I think would want to study one or the connection between all of those would be would be good, like even Jewish, Jewish universities. And, yeah. Cool. And what do you hope, you know, God willing, one day when this is finished, what do you hope the viewer will take away from uh, your project after experiencing it? Um, I think that I would want people to, um, well, one of my favorite Mishnah, like in the world, and I think I told you this, is the, is the last one of Yoma, where it says God is a mikvah. I think it's in Yermiyahu, too. Mm-hmm. And, um I think I just love that, and I really I think that what I would want people to take away is this is just this sense of hope that I think is represented in a mixa and also in the ability to change the world in this way. Um, that we really do have the capacity to to build a paradise on Earth. It isn't just an inner kind of consciousness shift that can that has to happen. It, there's also I mean that's part of it, but there's also really this these really practical ways that we could that we could supply, that communities can have water and food, and it's real, you know? You know, I'm just having, like, all my brain's exploding here as you're talking. When I think of mikvah, you know, (laughs) back in the marital sense, a big thing I think about is renewal, but this is like a renewable, sustainable water source, so it's really, it just plays so much back and forth together, right? I'm saying, like, that's Exactly. I don't know if I told you this. Now we're having a rehashing of did I remember to tell you this when I met you conversation um, in our mikvah video. I can, I guess I can tell our, our listeners as well. Um, I was trying to find the link between mikvah and tikvah, the, you know, the bath that we immerse in and, yeah. and hope because they, ha- they share the same root. And um, I wanted something new. I wanted my own thought, not just something I, I read somewhere else. And um, it was one night I was coming back from the mikvah and my husband and I had had a couple of weeks before that where just we were so off kilter and just we were annoying each other and just everything was we were just fighting and being petty and it was just sort of like a bad you know sort of uh, couple of weeks in our marriage and then as I was driving home from the mikvah what I realized is that this is the reset button this is you know the chance to mm. just kind of start from fresh you know clean the slate begin again and I realized that that is the essence of hope the chance to you know renew and you know, get your chance for the, the fresh start within your marriage. But um, the fact that the same, you know, body of water could also uh, renew and replenish um, in an arid desert. I mean, how, how hopeful is that? That's, um, that's pretty incredible. Um, was mikvah yeah. something that you knew about in your pre-Orthodox days? Um, and if not, do you remember when you first uh, learned about it? <laughs> um, no, I didn't know about it. And I remember when I was first starting to learn. I knew the mikvahs, you know, the private mikvahs for, like, more fristiest purposes and everything, and I didn't know that the natural bodies of water were actually the real, like, were totally, like, mikvahs, like, that the oceans and everything were. So that was, that was a good learning that I came, that I found, you know. And is there, is there something, I'm saying, were, did you already have an interest in mikvah before you saw that water retention landscape? Was it No, kind of I mean... 
interesting. I mean, yeah, I I I liked. Huh, I really did like. I like the idea of it. I mean, it's only good, right? But to just exactly what you described, like to reset and have that ability to immerse in, in total communion in that way. Um, so I guess I did have a very deep interest without really knowing knowing that it would be something that I would really devote a lot of time to before I was mm. married. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, mikvah has gotten a little bit of a bad rap as being anti-women. Um, and obviously you're a very pro-woman kind of woman. Um, you know, do you have a response to, the, you know, people who think that it's negative, like why you see it as such a, a positive force? Hmm. Well, I feel like I, I would love to find out from you if it, if it works, if it worked in your marriage, <laughs> like if, if the reset button, if it was able to be really seen those weeks when you told your husband, I guess, I just reset, I went to the mikvah. Right. So, you know what, I'll tell, I'll tell you what I think the problem is. If a person relies on the mikvah as like the panacea for their marriage and, you know, doesn't have the other stuff worked out, then it's not, it's not a button that you can just, you know, hit and suddenly everything becomes good. You need to have everything else in place, you know, all the communication and all the giving and all the forgiving and all the growing, all that stuff needs to be in place. Um, and we're, you know, we'll be married this summer, God willing, 15 years. Um, and what I can tell you is that once that other stuff is in place, and of course, some, you know, sometimes you're not as good as you could be and you both can use to work more. If you have the other stuff in place, then it's kind of like the icing on the cake. It's the stuff that keeps, you know, in my experience, in my friend's experience, um, and I even know about my parents because my, my parents started practicing Taharas Mishpacha um, when I guess they were like in their late 40s. And my mother would come home and be like, oh, this is a great mitzvah, and be like, TMI, mommy, we don't want to hear about it. But um, yeah. <laughs> it's happening now. You obviously, yeah. look, different people have different experiences. And I, I think that um, if someone has a feeling where, you know, um, this is just going to be an easy fix and no other work is going to be required, then, um, then they're going to be sorely disappointed. But I think if they do all the other hard work that marriage requires, then it definitely has a way. It, it sinks couples up so they're on the same cycle. Um, and, you know, after years of marriage, you know, sort of keeping that spark alive. Um, and, yeah, really it's, uh, what were you going to say? Oh, you can finish what you're saying. I'm just thinking, I, I did have a beautiful, I did learn a, do you want to finish what you were saying first? Oh, no, now I'm trying to think. There was something else that I was going to say. I was on, actually, um, oh. HuffPost Live a few months ago um, with, I would somehow got on an episode with, like, all these sex therapists. It was all them and me, and I all I had to do was, like, to draw from my own experience, um, which I said, like, you know, I don't want to share too much since I can't talk about the college I've taught or the, you know, people that have come to my mikvah, but, um, you know, one of the things that I shared is that my husband is a little bit of a deadlines kind of guy, like, you know, he won't finish a work project unless, like, it's due at this time, and then, like, he'll finish it. And so, like, it's with such a busy schedule, sometimes you can kind of get forgotten about. And so knowing that our time together is on a deadline is actually extremely motivating that, like, if we don't get our time together now, then, you know, we'll miss it for the month. And for procrastinators, you know, it's a, it's a great <laughs> part to a marriage. So, yeah. Mm. 
But yeah, if you don't need, if you don't have anything else to add, that's fine. Or if you do, it's fine. Um, we can uh, we can wrap things up. And I, I totally appreciate you debuting uh, this project to us on our show. And we're we're so excited to hear more about it and to you know kind of hear so you, you have a couple more um, pictures you want to take uh, before it's finished. Correct? Something about like the the splitting of the Red Sea. Did I did I get this right? Yeah, well, I want to. I want to do. I do want to bring up Miriam into one photograph. So I want to definitely bring um, the Red Sea relating to Mixa somehow. And um, I see that with you know just having a Mixa with a bunch of women and kind of timbrels to make us remember the you know to trigger our memory of the of the crossing of the sea. But I did want to say one thing. I, I heard a really beautiful teaching about um, about saying that in Mixa, like that the reason there's this idea of unholiness is because there just isn't the possibility of life. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have learned that from Ruth, someone, an Israeli teacher. And um, so if this is like the opposite of that, it's just the purity or the upward the mikvah represents, then it's just the real kind of pro-life. And I do feel that way about the project. I, I think that it offers an opportunity for for life, for communities, and, you know, around the world. So. Beautiful. Well, we wish you a lot of uh, success in completing this, and uh, we hope it's received, you know, very positively, and that it inspires Jews to learn more mm-hmm. about mikvah, about other mitzvahs in general, other artists to find ways to, you know, connect Torah and you know, the art that they create. And um, it's uh Really excited to have discovered you and and to see where you're going to go, Emily. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Allison. This has been so special. Thank you. Yes, same for us. (laughs) Happy to know you, too. Okay. Have have a, a great day. You, too. Okay. And that was Emily Stern. Um... Howard Stern's daughter became Orthodox, and we got to hear about how she uses Torah to um, create art and to inspire people. And um, it's an exciting discovery that she decided to go in this direction with her life and to express her spirituality and her connection to God in this way. And uh, we look forward to updating you about future projects that Emily is working on. And one more quick thing before we run. This will be our first Project Makom Shabbos, Shabbaton, this uh, coming Shabbos. We have about 60 people coming to the five towns. This is uh, the first of its kind, an initiative for ex-Haredim who either left the community completely or want a different type of orthodoxy or looking for a different alternative. Um, And we are getting them together and showing them some other possibilities within the Torah world. And we are super excited to get this group together and begin something huge. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you here same time, same place next week.